Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Galatians. I've been wanting to continue this series on the fruit of the Spirit because I want our congregation not only to be informed of important matters such as this, to be very well versed in prophetic realities and what God promises regarding the Jewish people, or even with respect to our own traditions as we attempt to express our faith in a Jewish way and to help the non-Jewish churches in our community and in our uh, vicinity to understand the Jewish roots of their faith. All of those things are significant and they are critical. They're important for us as individuals who are Jewish believers and for those of us who are not Jewish believers but love the Jewish people, want to be more relevant and connected with them and to be better informed in how it is that we can communicate our faith to them. All of those things are critical. But I don't think they're as critical in some respects to how it is we live our life before the Lord. I mean, this is why the Lord has brought us into fellowship with himself. Romans 8 tells us that the work that God is doing in our midst is to conform us into the image of his son. And so it's imperative that we yield ourselves, surrender ourselves, cooperate with God's work in making us more like Yeshua. And what does it mean to be more like him? What would we look like if we were more like him? And Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, tells us exactly what we would be like. We would manifest these certain characteristics, these certain qualities. And I think it's interesting that in Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks about being conformed into the image of his son. Could have said to be conformed into the image of God. For after all, Genesis tells us that we are created in the image of God. That we are created in his likeness. So Romans 8 could have said that God was conforming us into the image of himself, restoring us to that look, that manner of being in which he had originally created us like. But he doesn't. He says he would conform us into the image of his son. It's important for us to realize why he does that. And the reason has to do with these qualities and characteristics that are spoken of in Ephesians, uh, Galatians chapter 5. So turn with me there and let me just read these verses to you. In verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other. 
So these are characteristics that we are to see manifested in our lives. Another way of looking at these verses or these terms is to see that it describes what holiness is about. This is, in effect, a description of a holy life. Now, the reason why I made reference to Romans chapter 8 is because the neat thing, the unique thing that happens when the second person of the triunity, the word, becomes flesh and takes on human form, now we can see these qualities fleshed out in our midst. Prior to that, they are abstract ideas, but they are not realities until we see it lived out clearly before us. To be conformed to the image of his son means to say, take a look at Yeshua. How did he live? How did he conduct his life? That is the way God wants us to live. That is the way God wants us to conduct our lives. Prior to his coming into the world, we're sort of uh, distant or more distant from the very character of God until he takes on human form and fleshes out right in our midst what it looks like to be a holy person. And to be a holy person means to reflect the holiness of God. Now, here's the problem with these things. Each one of these characteristics can be easily counterfeited. These characteristics can be misunderstood. And so we think we are manifesting them when in reality we are not. The reason I say that is because what these characteristics are, are something that theologians refer to as attributes characteristics of God or their attributes of God. That is to say, things that are attributed to the character of God. And therefore, theologians refer to them as attributes. But there are different kinds of attributes or characteristics of God. Theologians divide them into two parts. One kind of attribute of God is what is referred to as incommunicable attributes. That is to say, attributes of God that he does not share with anyone else. For example, God is infinite, doesn't share that with anyone else. No one else is without, infinite means to be not finite. It's also interesting that some of these words, we can't properly describe the nature of God except in the negative. We don't know what it means to be without limits. You know, we always have to use some kind of negative terminology, without limits. Well, what does that mean? It means with all things. I mean, it's hard to say it positively. So we say infinite, which means not finite. But that's something he doesn't share with anyone else. That's what distinguishes him from all other beings. We speak of God as being omnipresent. He doesn't share that with anyone else. It's an incommunicable attribute. He alone is everywhere at the same time in the same way. No one else can do that. He's the only one who is omniscient, It's an incommunicable attribute. Nobody else knows all things. Only God knows all things. Only God is omnipotent. He's the only one that has all power. It's an incommunicable attribute. So you follow what the theologians mean to say when they talk about incommunicable attributes. But on the other hand, there are what are referred to as communicable attributes. That is, attributes that he does share with others. So, for example, he shares love with others. So, therefore, we're called, we're commanded to love one another. Why? Because God is love. And so he enables us to manifest something of what love is, which is what he is embodied with. Because the scripture says God is love. 
So the kind of love that the scripture would be talking about is the kind of love that is descriptive of God, and he shares that with us. God is kind. He shares that with us. God is gentle. He shares that with us. God is long-suffering. God is merciful, but he shares that with us. Now, you ask the question, how is it, and it was asked in uh, the Bible study we had Wednesday night, how is it that one acquires these things? How do we get this stuff? How do we become gentle people? How do we become long-suffering individuals? How do we become loving individuals? The tendency among ourselves is to try to find simplistic answers to very deep and complicated matters. It's a complicated matter to become loving when we have been alienated from God all our lives and separated from his kindness. When you think about this, I came to faith when I was 17, but some of us have come to faith later in life. If we've lived our life this much of our span of life in this particular way, and we have a a history, a legacy that preceded it of ancestors that have lived their lives a certain way, and now we come to faith and we say, Lord, transform me, and we expect to become all of this within a very short time when we've been like this, For all of this time, we want something very simple and easy for us to, you know, get to the goal that we want. So we want these kinds of seminars, three easy steps to whatever it is. Now, I'm not against seminars because a lot of these things can be very helpful. But we need to realize it's much more complicated than three easy steps to. But this notion of communicable and incommunicable attributes sort of helps me to understand how it is that we can acquire some of these things. Because the word communicable, which means to share, we also use that with regard to, well, we're all watching and we're praying about and we're aware of the Ebola uh, epidemic. Why is Ebola such a scourge? Why is it that we fear it so much? Why is it that we're calling individuals to be quarantined? Because it is a communicable disease. It's a disease that you can catch. And how do you catch that disease? By coming in close contact and proximity with those who have it, and therefore you acquire it. That's sort of the way I think one acquires the fruit of the Spirit. It's a communicable attribute, not a disease. (laughs) It's a communicable attribute, which means you catch it. So what do you have to do? You have to get close to the one that has it, just like a disease. So if you want to have love, there's no three easy steps. It's a matter of getting close to where love is. And where is it? It's in the living God. So what happens, and what I think happens, is the more we recognize the holiness of God... And the more as we recognize the holiness of God, we come to realize the sinfulness of ourselves. It forces us to say, I need to get close to the holiness of God that I might become loving, that I might become patient, that I might become long-suffering. It's a communicable attribute, which means it's not something you just can abstractly discuss. It's something you have to get close to and catch. And the way that I find it happening more more often than not, it's not in the crucible of delights. It's in the crucible of suffering and pain. Because that's where we realize 
our limitations and our need. It's there that we realize the sinfulness of our ways. What's very interesting about these attributes, about these characteristics, about what we refer to as the fruit of the Spirit, we could call fruit attributes, we could call fruit characteristics, but notice they are fruit of the Spirit. That means to say they are descriptive of Him. Not only are they descriptive of Him, who is the third person of the triunity and therefore of God, but they are also provided by him. That means they come from him. They don't come from disciplinary exercises. They come as a gift from him, which means to say that if, the, if you are of the Lord, Romans chapter 8, if you are of Messiah, the spirit of God dwells in you. That's what Paul says. If you do not have the spirit, you are none of his. If you are of him, you have the spirit. If you have the Spirit, that means you have the fruit of the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is the characteristic, characteristics of the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, the fruit of the Spirit must be there. So you say, why isn't the fruit of the Spirit manifested in my life as it ought to be? Because you're not getting close enough to God. Because you're not following him. Remember what Paul says here. Those who are led by the spirit. Those who keep in step by the spirit. Those who follow the spirit. It's all about one's connection with God. And that's what scripture reveals. Let me show you something that I learned when I was thinking about this passage. Look at Job, for example. Job is referred to as the righteous man in all the earth. Job is the man that God points out to the evil one and says, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him. And Satan says, well, of course there's no one like him. Look at all the blessings you've poured out upon him. If you didn't pour out all those blessings upon him, he wouldn't be the righteous man that that you see him to be. God says, oh, that is not true. In fact, you could take everything you want from him and you will see that that individual, Job, will stand strong and will follow me to the end of his days. And so you could do anything you want to him, just don't take his life. And throughout the entirety of Job's experience, he wrestles with why is this happening? He does not wrestle with how can God be doing this to him as such. He's wrestling with why is this going on? And he can't figure it out. His friends are telling him, the reason you're going through this crucible of suffering is because you have sinned. And he hadn't at all. They had no clue as to what God was doing, although they were certain they knew everything about what was happening. But they didn't. God was doing this precisely to demonstrate the righteousness of his servant. God was doing this because he wanted to demonstrate what he had done in and through this individual to make him uniquely different as one who follows the Lord. And so this encounter was not a matter of Job's sin. It was a matter of Job's righteousness. Think about that. But Job, though a righteous man, is still in need of understanding the holiness of God. So when you get to the end of the book of Job... It says in chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? And the answer, of course, is there's no way. Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord. Look how he answers. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? 
I love this phrase. I put my hand over my mouth. It's like, you know, a person said, oh my goodness, if I've really done that, you know, it's like an expression of disdain and embarrassment. Oh, I put my hand over my mouth. I cease to speak. And then he says, I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Check this. Brace yourself like a man. I love that too, don't you? I mean, cease to be a coward. Stand strong as I now come before you. By the way, when I looked at this idea of being a coward, I turned to Revelation, a passage that I used to always deal with my students. Whenever I wanted to get at the truth, I would say to them, you know, Revelation says, all liars shall have their part in the lake that burns forever, you know. So, uh, did you or did you not cheat on that test, you know? Put a little pressure on them, maybe a little unfair, but, you know, it sort of was my way. But you know what that passage starts out with? doesn't say all liars only. The very first thing it says, the cowardly. The cowardly. I thought, you know, I mean, poor guy, you know, he's just not courageous, you know. And here it says the cowardly. And then I realized what that's about. It's about the willingness to stand up for God when it's hard. It's about the willingness to stand for what is right when it is hard. It's easy to compromise on integrity. It's hard to stand tall when it is uh, the right thing to do. So here God says to Job, knowing that you're the most righteous man, brace yourself (laughs) like a man. And I can imagine he's probably holding on to everything around him. And God says, I will question you and you will answer me. Now look at the end of this section of uh, Job 42. I want you to see how one acquires holiness, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Look what he says in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? I love that phrase. Who is it that's trying to figure out what I am up to who has no idea what they're talking about? You know, that's the Jersey way of putting it. And then he says, you asked, who is this obscure? Surely I spoke of things, Job says, I did not understand. He said, he spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. Verse 4, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you. This is going back to verse 7. I will question you and you will answer me. Now look what Job says. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore... What happens? I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When a person encounters God and genuinely sees the Lord, it brings a man like Job, who's the most righteous man in all the earth, to his knees and to repent of his sin. Job isn't the only one. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah is brought up into the very presence of God in a vision. We looked at this a few weeks ago. But when he stood before the Lord and he heard the voice of the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Verse 5, what does Isaiah say? Woe to me. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He realizes his sin. And he recognizes the holiness of God. 
He must cry out to God for atonement, cry out to God for forgiveness. And when he experiences that, he sees for the first time what the holiness of God is really all about. It's not just these men. Take a look at Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, when the disciples are first encountering the Messiah of Israel, in verse 4 it says, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, that's Yeshua, he says, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now look what this does. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at his knees. He said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. When one encounters the holiness of God, one cannot but see the sinfulness of themselves. And when one sees the sinfulness of oneself, he cries out to God for mercy. And when God provides his mercy of grace and redemption, fills him with his spirit, the holiness of God begins to manifest itself in and through that individual. Now, let me say something about the fruit of the spirit here. It's very easy to love God for his power. And it's very easy to love God for his mercy. Because these are attributes and qualities of God by which we benefit. In other words, when we love God for his power, we're loving him for what he does for us. Because by his power, he enables us to do certain things we otherwise couldn't do. And so what happens? We love him because, we, because of what we get from him. We love God because of his mercy. Because when we experience his mercy, we're, the guilt is removed from us. So why are we loving God? We're loving God for what we get from him. And in that context, sometimes unbelievers can love God just like believers. Although we can't really tell the difference of whether or not they're believers or not because they're loving God for what he does. But only believers can love God because of his holiness. Because now we're loving God for who he is, not merely because of what he can do for us. It's when you love God for who he is and you draw close to him because of what he is that you begin to catch the fruit of the Spirit. It's embracing him as he is for himself and not merely because of what he can do for you. And by the way, that's the way God loves Israel. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells Israel why he loves Israel. And in Deuteronomy 7, he doesn't say, I love Israel because you're the greatest of all nations. In fact, he says, you're not. You're the least of all nations. He doesn't say, I love you, Israel, because you're the most powerful of all nations. He doesn't say, because you're the wisest of all nations. And he doesn't say, because you're the most spiritual of all nations. But he tells us why he loved Israel. He loves Israel because he loves Israel. He loves Israel not for anything he can get from Israel or anything Israel has. He loves Israel out of his own prior love for Israel. By the way, that's the reason why he loves you. God set his love upon you, not because we were the greatest of all people, not because we were the mightiest. God chose the weak things of the world to confound the strong. He chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He chose those whom he so chose simply because he loved them for who they are, not what he could get from them or not even what they might become. 
That's the highest form of love we can have for God. Simply to love him because of who he is and not for anything we can acquire from him. That's what these men were experiencing. Job was realizing, I am a sinful man, and yet God has made me the most righteous man in all the earth. I am a sinful man, and yet God is calling me to go out and be sent by him to serve. I am a simple man, sinful man, but yet God has filled my fish, my boat with fish. It is loving God and recognizing God for who he is and not merely because of what he does and what he has provided. And that's where the fruit of the Spirit comes in. Because it's the ability now to demonstrate, to manifest, to reflect the very character of God without having to receive anything in return. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, we still haven't looked at love yet. We're going to get there. But the fruit of the Spirit is also interesting because it's not fruits of the Spirit. See, in English, the word fruit can be both a plural and a singular. You could talk about, I have five different kinds of fruit on my table. And there it's plural. Or you can say, I love this fruit, this apple fruit. I don't know what people say there. But fruit can be singular. But here in the Greek, it is not plural. It is singular. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc., So someone has said, you need to look at the fruit of the Spirit like you would. And I wish Dan Rifkin was here because he could probably let let us know if I'm telling the truth or not. But I think the fruit, and someone has mentioned this, the fruit of the Spirit is like looking at a diamond. Because when you, you know, diamonds are made up of facets, sections. And when you look inside any one of the facets of a diamond, you see the whole diamond. Similarly, the fruit of the Spirit is when you see one aspect, which I guess, or one facet of the fruit of the Spirit, you see them all. In other words, someone can't say, well, I have the fruit of the Spirit, love, now I'm going to work on patience. Now, it is true you can lag behind in some of these aspects, but you can't not have any of them and have only one of them. So you either either have the fruit of the Spirit or you do not have the fruit of the Spirit. You know, and you either are manifesting the fruit of the spirit or you're lagging behind in the manifesting of the fruit of the spirit. But it isn't as if I got this one. Now I'm going to move on to the next one. It's all one package. And so they all must be there. Like the diamond, when you look at one, you see it all. When you see love, you see joy, you see peace, you see long suffering. When you see long suffering, you see joy, you see peace, you see patience. When you see patience, you see love, long suffering and gentleness. So you see it all. It's all there or it's not there. And that's where it gets really interesting. Because you see, we judge our faith by the things we do, not by the character that we exhibit. And that's a tendency we all have. We would prefer to talk about what we accomplish and the activities we're engaged with than the quality of our life and character that we exhibit. And that could be very dangerous. I say it could be very dangerous because Yeshua tells us how dangerous it is. Turn with me, and we've looked at this once before, but let me turn your attention to it once again. Look at Matthew chapter 7. This is exactly what Yeshua wants us to be very much concerned about because the distance between heaven and hell is the distance between your character and your activities. I say that because years ago I used to work for the American Track Society. They had a tract that was entitled Missing Heaven by 18 Inches. And so the distance was, you could have all this stuff in your head and not in your heart. 
You can have all the theological niceties and all the understanding and not have it in your heart. What is that saying? You can understand all kinds of things and it not be a part of your life and character and you're in deep trouble. So you can miss heaven by 18 inches. That would be really terrible. But I think the distance is even shorter than that. Because you can miss heaven by thinking you earned it by virtue of your activities, when in reality your activities say little about what you may have really experienced. So there are two passages that are really interesting on this score. Let me take your attention to the first one, then we're going to look at love. Look at Matthew chapter 7. He says, watch out for false prophets. Why? Because they come to you with the right activities, the right look, sheep's clothing. Got to be careful. But inwardly, what's in their heart, what's in their character, they are ferocious wolves. You wouldn't think ferocious. It'd be just enough to say wolves, but no, 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 no. They are ferocious wolves. And look how you'll recognize them, by their fruit. What does he mean? By their character. What is he talking about in Ephesians, the fruit of the Spirit? There's a variety of ways in which fruit is used, but here it's speaking about the character of the individual. And notice what he goes on to say. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from fig trees? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. Got to be careful with those among us. He says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, here's the interesting thing. See, in verses 21, where it gets really challenging, really scary, it has to do with activities. Look what he says. He says, there will be those who will say to me, Lord, Lord. The word Lord, of course, is their Theological orthodoxy. They know exactly who Yeshua is. He is God come in the flesh. They even acknowledge him as Lord. Not just once, but twice. Lord, Lord. Whenever you see these doublings, of course, that's a statement of emphasis. Yeshua would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. Or you see like Isaiah, holy, 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 the seraphim say. Or Yeshua says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, Hebrews, woe unto you, scribes. All this repetition is meant to enhance and deepen and emphasize what he's saying. These people know very, very much theological precision. They don't just say, Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. We know exactly what it is that we are supposed to know theologically. And look what, they, what is described by them. It's all about activities. He says, uh, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, but only he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, look at the activities. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out evil spirits? Didn't we perform many miracles? The focus is on activities. What Messiah is looking for is character. Remember what Paul said, Romans 8, what I started with. He is conforming us into the image of his Son. It is about character. It's about fruit of the Spirit. I'm not saying we should not be engaged in activities, but if we are judging our faith by our activities, we could be deluding and deceiving ourselves. But it's not just here. Now, just in the last few moments, we're looking at love. What is love? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Where else could we turn but to this passage? 1 Corinthians 13 is the whole passage on love. If we want to know what is meant by the fruit of the Spirit, love, it's 1 Corinthians 13. But here's what's striking to me in 1 Corinthians 13. There's three parts to it. The first part takes us from verses 1 to 3. And it speaks to us of the preeminence of love. Love is more important than anything else. But look at the things that Paul tells us love is greater than. 
He tells us, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. You see the things Paul's talking about? This is really interesting because he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about individuals who exercise the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit can be exercised without love. And then he says, if we so exercise the gifts of the Spirit without love, we've become nothing. Yet we think we've become everything. Look what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, what is he talking about? The gift of tongues. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, he's talking about preaching, teaching, prophesying. He says, if I have the gift of giving and I give everything I have to the poor. He talks about the gift of service. If I'm willing to be so serve so as to even suffer the martyrdom for the faith. If I do all of those things to you and I, they look pretty good. People say, Gary, you know, you teach pretty good. I see a gift operated. You do pretty good. People see someone give extremely generously. I see it often. As individuals would come to me and they entrust me with funds and they say, uh, would you give this out to people who have a need? People ask me, is there someone you know who has a need I'd like to give to them? I see the wonderful giving of gifts to others. But if it's done without love, he says, it is nothing. We think it's everything. I think it's really amazing. But if it's done without love, in God's eyes, it is nothing. This is really serious stuff, right? I mean, we pride ourselves in gifts of the Spirit, in exercising the gifts of the Spirit, in activities and doings. And Paul says, if it does not have the quality of God behind it, it is nothing. He's even saying that the Holy Spirit, who has given a gift, and the book of Romans tells us the gifts of God, the callings of God are irrevocable. He doesn't take them back. When he gives us a gift, he doesn't just take it back. And say, hey, you know, you're unworthy of that. You're not going to do it anymore. He doesn't do that. So the gift can be given. The gift can be exercised. And yet exercised without love. And he says, the gift then and what you are doing amounts to nothing. Yeshua tells us it could be even worse than that. It could serve to delude you to think God is really at work in and through you. When in fact, he is not. Because you're not doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it is imperative that we not just do the kinds of things God would have us to do, but to become the kinds of individuals God would have us become. So you ask, how can I become it? And we said it before, you have to get close to God. There's no easy steps to the fruit of the Spirit manifest in your life. You need to come to God. Like Job, you need to gaze upon him and and then Put your hand over your mouth and say, I can't speak because look at the holiness of God. We have to get close to God so that we see him like Isaiah saw him and said, woe is me. I'm undone unless God redeems me. We have to get close to God and say, oh my goodness, look at all these blessings that are surrounding me. I'm a sinful man and I ought not to stand in the presence of this holy one. That's how the fruit of the spirit becomes manifest. And so the preeminence of, the, of love is focused upon by Paul. But then he describes it. And look, it's the fruit of the Spirit. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. 
That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's all intertwined. He says, love does not, is not envious. It's not jealous of what other people have. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't behave rudely. You know, that word rude is really interesting because it's like it doesn't behave in an uncivil way. And the word civil, civility, means to be polite. <laughs> you know, that's what it means. So love doesn't act in an unpolite way. It's not proud. It doesn't boast of itself. He says it's not easily angered. Tells us it doesn't keep a record of wrongs, you know, as we catalog in our minds of the things that were done to us. He says it doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It always seeks to look out for others. It always seeks to embrace the truth. It always seeks to hope. It always perseveres. And in the last section, he says, love will endure forever. These three abide, but the greatest of these is love. And then we oftentimes forget the beginning of chapter 14, but he says, follow the way of love. It's not hard to understand the fruit of the Spirit as love. It's a matter of simply coming before God and bowing before him. How can we do that? I think there are two ways that it can be done. It's always done, I think, in the crucible of suffering. It's always found in the crucible of trials. That's where these things emerge. Why? Because why do you need love? Because there's something unloving happening in your midst. So we're called about to love. By the way, remember, love is not an affection. It's not an emotion. Liking is an emotion. But love is not an emotion. Love is the sacrificial relinquishing of what is most dear to us for the sake of another. That's why Yeshua will say, greater love has no man than this, than that he likes his fellow man. No, that he would lay down his life for others. It's a sacrificial action of relinquishing what is most dear for the benefit of another. And that's why the scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This was handed to me early in the service. I'll just read it to you. It's entitled John 3.16 Amplified and the author is a thankfully redeemed sinner by the grace of God. So it says, Father God so loved the world of humanity that he created in his own image that even though they sinned and rebelled against him, still he sent his only begotten son, Yeshua of Nazareth, born of a virgin, to shed his blood on a cross to satisfy the law for all mankind because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And whoever believes in him as the son of God repents of, of their sin, should not perish, would not perish, will not perish, but spend everlasting life with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's because of the love of God that he has shed abroad in our hearts and the redemption that is a consequence of it. In Colossians, and I'll close with just two passages I wanted to read to you, Ephesians and Colossians, but in Colossians chapter 3, here's how you can get close to God. And as a consequence over time and through the crucible of trials where we allow God to manifest himself, he says, let the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts. That's a command. Any anxiety going on, any stresses going on, we're told, let the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts. 
So as you go through these trial things, I, gotta, I, I fill my mind that the peace of Messiah can rule in my heart. Can rule in my heart. Can have control over my heart. That's what Paul says. He says, allow the peace of Messiah to rule over everything and anything that might invade our life that would disrupt the notion that God is in control of all things. And the second thing he says, let the word of Messiah dwell in you richly. So these are the two things. You let the peace of Messiah rule in your heart through prayer and meditation and reflection on the holiness of God. And that holy God loves you. And you spend time in his word, not just time in his word, but the application of his word to your circumstances. Let the word of Messiah dwell in your hearts richly. He knows our needs even before we ask. What need do you have? He knows it even before we ask. Do you believe that? He knows it even before we ask. And he's provided for it even before we know what it is we need. And even if we ask for the wrong thing that we think we need, he's going to provide the right thing that we need. Do we believe, do we believe that? We really trust that? When we do, the holiness of God comes through. The sinfulness of ourselves is manifest because, man, those things are not easy to accept. But when it is experienced, the fruit of the Spirit begins to permeate and manifest itself in our lives. So Paul concludes, or I'll conclude with Paul's final thoughts in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says in verse 31, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice, but be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as Messiah God forgave you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful. And as I'm praying, the ushers can come forward. Father, as we reflect on the truths presented in your word, help us to draw close to you that these communicable characteristics might be caught by us. Help us, Father, not to think there are easy fixes to this, for there aren't. It's all about applying to our hearts the truths of your word in the crucible of challenges that would bring forth our need to trust and rely upon you. So, Father, as we draw close to you, we realize our own sinfulness and our own weakness. And that only enables us to cry out all the more for your holiness and for your forgiveness. So, Lord, we want to be a congregation where the fruit of the Spirit is genuinely and naturally evident in and through us. And we pray, Father, that through our lives, others will be drawn unto you. We are grateful for the gifts that will be received this morning. We are thankful, Father, for the generosity of those who see the ministry here and say, I'm ready to support it, to undergird it with my gifts that the ministry could go forward. 
We pray that you would bless them. And as you say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. May we give joyfully and may we give generously to you, O Lord, and to your work here at Beth Ariel. We praise you for all things. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.